Hello, 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 and welcome to week 31 of the 52 Week Film Project. This week we um, have gone back and looked at our Golden Globes predictions, seeing if they've gone okay, see if they've not gone okay. Uh, we're looking forward to the BAFTAs with this week's news, but also we are looking at Stan and Ollie, uh, starring the ghost of Stanton Jones and also um, Alan Park. Partridge, the Alpha Papa. Uh, my name is Will. This is Jake. How are you doing, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, mate. I was thinking, I I don't even know much about Laurel and Hardy, but I have no fucking clue who Will's bringing up now. And then you said Alan Partridge, so I was like, oh, I kind of get the joke. The ghost of Stanton Jones, isn't it? Stan Stanton or Stanley Jones is the go- is um, John C. Riley and Anchorman. No, oh, really? Part. Yes. Uh, I may. I'll, I'll take your word for it. Oh, you know what? This is a weird segue. Anchorman. How many Anchorman films are there, Will? Three. Oh, damn it, you're already in the know. I found <laughs> out. So I, I, you know, topical, because we're talking about Adam McKay, the director, coming up in my bit of news. But I was looking up all the stuff he'd done before, because I know you're a big fan of him from The Big Short. Let's be yes. brutally honest, he has done some shit films. He's done oh, some absolute terrible. tripe. He's not some incredible prestige director that I had in my head he was after watching The Big Short. No, he's done some rubbish. But he's done the Anchorman films as well, which are kind of semi-trash. I only thought there were two films. There is a there is an Anchorman movie, ladies and gentlemen, called Anchorman, the the lost or the forgotten film or something like that. Mm. And it's a feature-length movie. It never got a theatrical release. It's about 90 minutes long. It's Ron Burgundy. It's the whole shebang. And it was, it was critically panned. Everyone hates it. It was a box office bomb, obviously, without even you know being straight to DVD. Um, have you watched it, Will? Um, I have not watched it, no. I, I, I really should do, but I think I've watched clips from it, which build up. I mean, Anchorman 2 doesn't really make sense if you don't watch that film. There's a lot of in-jokes from the, that film that but it was Anchorman 2. It was released in the same year, and all those things... I started looking it up, and all of the, kind of the comments I was reading were saying that it's basically just a long series of deleted scenes that they sort of somehow made into a movie, which yeah, kind, right. kind of sounds like what they've done with Once Upon a Deadpool. Yeah, it's, it's essentially... Oh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, Once Upon a Deadpool is... is I prefer an, this Anchorman film to Once Upon a Deadpool as a concept because at least that's just the cast riffing as opposed to them trying to, like, commercially bang a dead horse with Deadpool 2. Yeah, <laughs> so true, so true. Um, commercially de- bang a de- dead horse. That sounds like the name of a band from the 80s. Commercially like bang a dead horse. Yeah. It sounds like a jet, like a really fucked up Japanese game show that they've like port, port, <laughs> ported to America and something's been lost in translation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, anyway, segueing with the whole uh, Deadpool theme, my first bit of news is obviously nice. a bit of superhero news. Yes, because that's what we do. That is what we do. We might as well rebrand it as a superhero podcast. Um, have you heard about the latest news in the Disney Fox acquisition, my friend? No, I haven't, Jake. Tell me more. So, this is quite interesting. (laughs) Obviously, the Disney Fox acquisition is looming, um, and so that will result in the return of character rights of X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and all of their tie-in characters, like the Silver Surfer. They're all going to return to Marvel Studios under Disney, which is really, really cool. Um, But the flip side of that is that there are films that are kind of currently being developed, have or some of them have been in development for a long time, um, that are being shelved as a result of this deal. So this, this this news came out a couple of days ago. Doctor Doom, Gambit, which is the one that's been in development no, hell for years, Gambit with Channing, Channing Tatum attached. 
Oh. And the Deadpool offshoot X Force, which is they've they've kind of said multiple times instead of Deadpool three, they're doing X Force. Um, they've all reportedly been shelved. Um, Simon Kinberg's Dark Phoenix and Josh Boone's New Mutants have both sort of finished production now, finally. Uh, so they're going to be the last two Marvel films released by Fox. Um, it's kind of sad, really. I mean, I, I I don't really... It makes a lot of sense to, to get rid of the Doctor Doom and Gambit films because, you know, one was taking forever to get off the ground and the other one was only really in its inception. But the X-Force film, that's a real shame. Because, you know, like Deadpool is such a big brand now. Obviously, me and you both didn't think the second one was as good as the first and were a bit pissy about this whole once upon a Deadpool cash cow thing. Um, But it is quite disappointing because kind of like the whole Deadpool series kind of hangs in the balance now. Like, what do they do? Do they somehow introduce Ryan Reynolds to the MCU? Because I don't really know if that's the right audience. Um, under Disney's leadership they'll have more creative control does that mean that Deadpool will kind of lose its point mm-hmm. um, but you know regardless like Disney's CEO Bob Iger has come out and said that they want to keep the series running um, but they haven't really specified anything I think that's kind of just to calm fans down um, but the other interesting tie in from this is as a result of the Fantastic Four property returning to Marvel under Disney um, Adam McKay, the man of the hour, the vice director, uh, he is in talks to kind of get himself more involved in the MCU. So he co-wrote Ant-Man, which is interesting. I, di- I didn't know that. Um, and he really, really wants to make a super, a, a Silver Surfer film. Uh, and he said that he'd want to make the movie a visual spectacle that would be like the MCU's equivalent of Speed Racer, which right. I found strange because Speed Racer was a notoriously really bad film that came out in 2008 based on a Japanese comic but I've got to hand it to him like I think the Silver Surfer is an incredible character Um, I think it was baffling how badly the character was treated in that Fantastic Four film it was like the second one uh, the rise of the Silver Surfer it was so so bad so you know I'm all for it I think they, they need to start introducing new characters into the fold I'm hoping that we're going to get a massive surprise and in Avengers Endgame in April um, we're going to see the introduction of some whole new, not like new superheroes, but heroes from Marvel that haven't been introduced to the MCU yet. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think kind of like how they introduced Spider-Man in Civil War, I think that to keep people's interest after this like s- climax, the, you know, the results of the Infinity War, um, I think they need to introduce some more even if it's only kind of like a teaser yeah they, they have well, to they, they have to have more pushing the avengers forward than black panther ant-man captain marvel and spider-man i mean when i say it it sounds like loads but i just think there needs to be more yeah i mean well i've heard some rumors um because that's what i do here rumors um <laughs> that gossip namor, cast. exactly um namor who is one of the oldest marvel um creations i think he was i think the comic for Namor was about 1937, 1936. So it's before Batman, before Superman, um, before most of the DC comics that pretty much started off the superhero legacy. And then Marvel only really did most of its characters in the 1960s. So I think they, I've heard that they might introduce Namor. And it would make sense considering Aquaman has also been very successful. It'd be quite, it would be interesting to see Aquaman, uh, uh, Namor is a 
King of Atlantis type thing as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the, those two duking it out. Going back to your point about Deadpool 2, um, I think it's a shame that it's not, it, w it will be a Marvel because Deadpool 2 always, or Deadpool in general always works better, it being the sort of competitor brand against Marvel the big tycoon. They, they found a lot of the comedy out of that. And it potentially going to Marvel, that could that could make it lose its all of its comedy. But yeah, exciting stuff about Silver Surfer. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I was capped off everything quite nicely. You did, like, you did, you tied it up. Point, point. You tied it up. I was trying to think of something else to say, and then we kind of stared longingly into each other's <laughs> eyes because we realised we both should have said something. Um, well, what, I'll go on to my first piece of news. <laughs> go on, mate. Go on, hit me with um, it. So, did you know there was a, there's an upcoming Minecraft film? Because I didn't. Oh, fucking hell, really? Well, this is the thing. So, it's based on a hugely popular game, Minecraft. Oh, no way, Will, really? I know, right? <laughs> Um, what Wikipedia can tell you. Um, what a useful it's been bouncing, description. It's been bouncing around in Hollywood for a while, and it's essentially not found the right cast or director, etc. Uh, they've now found a director, um, Peter Soleil. Um, I don't... This is his, probably his biggest commercial film to date. Um, he directed the film Raising Victor Vargas, uh, which was nominated for a Golden Camera at the Cannes Film Festival in 2002. And since then, he's sort of... He's written sort of small indie projects and then some sort of like TV and film um, directing roles. Um, but the story is about a teenage girl who, with an unlikely group of adventurers, must save their blocky overworld from the destructive force of the Ender Dragon. Um, sounds boring. Doesn't sound very nuanced. Christ, but then, it sounds like it, it sounds like uh, what studios developing this? Warner Brothers. It sounds like there's a there's like a junior intern like copywriting exec over at Warner Brothers and they were like quick you're young we've got like 20 minutes until our deadline for the Minecraft film world release I know write us a description <laughs> well this is this is the worst thing because you'd expect that it does not sound fleshed out doesn't sound interesting doesn't sound nuanced um Sean Levy who is the producer of The Arrival and Stranger Things was going to be the runner or the director of this um, and consider the idea and that's his premise that premise has come from him. And yeah, then it, it fell you, through. You know what? Like, I'm massively sceptical, and I think that there's only one kind of Hollywood scriptwriting unit that could take that on and successfully do it, um, and it's Phil Lord and Chris Miller. It's, Correct. you know, unless you get the guys, the team behind the Lego movie to do that film, it's not going to be successful. And I doubt the people that own the Lego movie IP are going to allow their writers to go and do such a big competing thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, massively sceptical. To be honest, mate, I'd rather watch a Fortnite movie. Oh, so would I, and that upsets me. I like, I love Minecraft. I love the educational aspects of Minecraft. Um, my, my, cousin, my second cousin, um, who calls me uncle because we're very close, um, he, I think at the age of seven or eight was creating these full-scale replicas of trains on Minecraft. And they had the engines, and they had... Everything was completely correct. It was like one-to-one -one scale. It was absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, it's, it, do it's, it's impressive, isn't it? I mean, I, I tried it once. I'm not going to lie. I got a headache. So <laughs> I watched, it, was, it was really boring, and I got a headache. And I just thought, no, this isn't for me. Um, yeah, I appreciate what it can do for younger kids learning sort of like the building blocks of the world. That was a nice turn of phrase. Yeah, yeah, it was um, indeed. 
But um, for someone who's played Assassin's Creed games and Batman games and stuff like that, it, putting bricks on top of a brick is worse than mining in RuneScape. Yeah, I just, I just, I just never found in in my experience with the game, I never found it immersive, and I, I, I understand that the kind of the the design of it and the graphics are quite iconic, but I found them quite grating, um, and I'm, I, I, I'm quite a graphical person when it comes to my video games i have quite a high i have quite a high spec so like i love things like the new spider-man game because my god it looks incredible it looks like you are spider-man flying around new york city Mm. i don't want to destroy pixels no no but that's that anyway slightly (laughs) more slightly more exciting thing to look forward to um, yeah. Netflix is doing its classic thing of green lighting every single show that comes in its footpath and just smashing the trailers on YouTube. There is, is Netflix a- going to have the the financial bust of a small country when it eventually? Because they've spending so much money, and I understand it makes a lot of money in return, but. Mate, I, mate, I know. I, 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 obviously, we talked a while ago about them buying their first um, uh, studio. Mm. Um, out in New Mexico, I, I don't know if that means that they are hemorrhaging money, paying over the odds for other people to make things, or if they're doing so well that they're expanding even more. I, I don't know how this stuff works. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, exciting new show coming out on February first. Um, it's called Russian Doll. Um, it's the first season of a new co- like sort of uh, dark comedy, um, and it's being developed by Amy Poehler of Parks and Rec. And, oh, and it stars Natasha Leon from Orange is the New Black. You know the one with the curly ginger hair? The slightly crazy one? Um, I mean, they're all crazy in Orange is the New Black. That doesn't help. But Wait, yeah. how, wh- which part? Oh, is it the person she's who's one of the, like... She's one of the main characters. She's like addicted to heroin at one point. She's a lesbian. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, she's, she's a relatively famous actress. She's huge in Orange is the New Black. Um, in Russian Doll, she plays a woman named Nadia. Um, and the description is that she's on her journey as the guest of honour at a seemingly inescapable party one night in New York City. Um, it's an all-female um, scripted comedy. It's an all-female directing team, which is really awesome. Uh, and it just looks so funny. Like The way the trailer's done is really clever. Essentially, it's this woman who goes to one of her friend's parties and then like falls down the stairs and dies. And then Netflix kind of like restarts the trailer... So it comes back up with the Netflix... I mean, we had a rant the other week with Bandersnatch about Netflix getting a bit too meta. I like it when it does it properly, and this is it doing it properly. So, like, the Netflix kind of logo comes up, like the trailer started again, and she then kind of, like, goes back to the party, but she's kind of got some sort of memory of what happens, and she's like, wait, what the fuck? Like, I was just here. And essentially, she keeps dying through this trailer, and she becomes so paranoid, and she's... The series seems to be, like, her trying to figure out why she keeps dying and how to prevent it. And then right at the end of the trailer, she's in an elevator, which is like coming crashing down. And she's looking at like a guy who's in the elevator with her. And she's like, aren't you scared? We're about to die. And he's like, no, it's fine. This happens to me like every night, which is a really cool twist. So like, yeah, it looks really fun. Um, It's only eight episodes. So I mean, you could watch it in a weekend. Uh, and, and then, like like with other things like that, like Santa Clarita Diet, you're going to have to wait another two and a half years until another season comes out. So, hurrah, for the, true? hurrah for the Netflix model that kind of forces you to watch things really fast and then makes you wait even longer for them. Santa Clarita Diet is, is two and a half years away. There was two and a half years between season one and season two. 
No. Mm. This is a problem. I binged both um, in like a weekend. Mate, you're telling me. Now... You're telling me. It's oh, such. It's such a shame. Like, don't get me wrong. I love binging a good show, like The Sinner, Stranger Things, Santa Clarita, Diet, all those things. But the biggest problem with binging is you watch it that fast. You probably don't rewatch it unless you really love it. And then you have to wait fucking ages for a new season to come out. And Netflix isn't like a standard service where they kind of give you an indication of when it's filming and when it's going to be released. They will literally like pop up on YouTube like two weeks before a new season's coming out with a trailer and go, oh, it's out in two weeks. Mm. That's what happened with Big Mouth. I was literally like, I was on the train and I was thinking like, oh, Big Mouth season two, surely that's coming out soon. And like literally, lo and behold, I was scrolling through YouTube like an hour later, and it pops up, and it's like, oh, back on the twenty fourth of such and such. Well, there are always happy accidents. Like when me and you binged watched together, my first time you showing it to me. Um, people, not people, just do nothing. What's the YouTube show that uh, I can't think? My mind's now gone blank. What? Don't hug me. I'm scared. Don't hug me. I'm scared. And then literally, as I'd watched the fifth episode, like the next week. The finale was going to come. The finale was going to come out. Yeah, and and, I, announced. and and the difference between me and you was I'd waited about four and a half years for like the final eight minute video, and you'd literally just watched a, a week. <laughs> I literally waited a week. Oh, crazy. I was, I was, I've been lucky like that. Game of Thrones. Um, I binged watched, and then I binged watched, and then season four started as I finished the last episode of season three. So then mm. I, I wound down slowly. And um, now. Exactly. Nice, nice anyway. segue, William. Thank you. Thank I knew you, you. I knew Jake, you were going to bring it out. Jake knows what uh, my second news article is because I'm sure the whole country knows. There is a Game of Thrones trailer. The Woo! release date has finally arrived. We know it's coming out. It is April 14th. Um, the trailer itself, it shows Sansa, Arya and Jon Snow in the crypt. Uh, it focuses on the parentage of Jon Snow with voiceovers from Catelyn Stark, Ned Stark and Lana Stark. Um, and it reveals the statues of Sansa, Arya and John at the end of the crypt. And then um, John and Arya draw their swords and then everything becomes really cold. There's a feather on the floor, which I'll discuss, bring, discuss later, um, that freezes <laughs> over. Oh, keep us yeah. guessing, Will. And it ends on sort of like a cliffhanger of the cold going towards them and then going Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, because um, April 14th. Because it isn't um, like the cold metaphor could be extended any longer. <laughs> um, it did look ridiculously Hollywood. This Game of Thrones trailer. There has been much more nuanced trailers. It's than a bit. This, it's this a bit one. wet, isn't it? I wasn't. It I wasn't. I wasn't much of a fan of it. But to be fair, I know that it's so kind of under wraps that I respect the fact that they're probably not going to release a big trailer, kind of showing you what's going to happen in the season exactly. because it would ruin it. Um, and I'm more excited for the fact that it's coming out April 14. Now I actually know when the next season is coming out. Um, in terms of things that we do see from the trailer, the only one that I can really um, like talk about is the fact that Bran Stark is not there, um, and the mm. four, the, there's only three Stark children, not mate, four, and there are four mate, alive. He's he's busy. He's busy revising. He's in second year at Birmingham Uni, isn't he? He's got, he's got to get his got to get his grind on. He can't fight any dragons. It, it's well, it's the end. It's that exact point at the end of the Christmas holidays where you rush, 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 rush to get those deadlines in. Um, but our, my theory is that is coming back to the feather on the floor. See what I did there. Um, the feather on the floor freezes over. Now that could be reminiscing of the three-eyed raven, which is what Bran now is. Mm. So maybe Bran's Bran's a dying, 
which would be a shame. Actually, it wouldn't. I'd board a brand storyline. <laughs> yeah, uh, smooth, smooth transition, though. Like, if he kind of wants out of, I mean, stupidly, if he wants out of the yeah. most popular TV show in the world, um, just fucking get him dubbed in as a pigeon and, mm. you know, paint it black and that's it. They've, they've got a character. <laughs> there's also... Um... <laughs> Fuck sick, Jake. Um, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's also other filming details that we know. Um, there is a massive battle that apparently took 55 days to shoot and takes place in three different locations. Oh, fucking hell, I'd Westeros. rather fight an actual battle. I know. Um, however, <laughs> imagine imagine uh, 55 days of coordinating a massive play fight. That well, must be so boring. No, you say, I mean, that's what these LARP people get, get their nut off to. Um <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it was the worst time you'd take a sip of water. Yeah, well, that's absolutely what they did, mate. They just went on Craigslist and were like, we need a bunch of fucking losers to start in Game of Thrones. Yeah, literally. 55 um, days shooting. Yeah, exactly. Bring your own sword. Or people who work at Laser Quest. Um, maybe not the Game of Thrones. Um, but yes, apparently it's going to be fantastic, um, I believe. I hope it's not too corny. Um, I hope it's not too Hollywood ending. I mean, the trailer makes it look like it. I maintain my opinion that I had after watching the last season. Um, I think it will be fantastic. I think it will largely do the characters justice, but it will feel rushed. Um, the last season was so unbelievably rushed, it drove me crazy. Like how in the earlier seasons, if um, a character had to travel from like Easteros to Westeros or something, it would take like a whole fucking season for them to journey there and they'd encounter a bunch of shit on the way. And then in this most recent season, it would be like, um, oh, what's the what's the what's the midget called? Tyrion. Yeah, not what you should call. Tyrion. Yeah, but there was there was a scene where Tyrion was right next to um, Daenerys, and he was like, I need to go and speak with my brother in uh, whatever the what's the main city called, like way over yonder. Where, King's Landing. King's Landing. That's it. I mean, I've got to brush up. Yeah, this, um, is, this is poor Jake. But no, no. But he was like, I need to go and speak. I need to go and seek counsel from my brother or whatever. And then, like, ten minutes later, in the same episode, he'd somehow made the journey that took him a whole season in like season three or four. Yeah. And it's like, come on, man! Like, you can't, you can't fuck, you, you can't do that. You can't make things so progressive um, and kind of like such a journey in the earlier seasons and then just suddenly expect us to believe that they can get there in a jiffy in the final seasons. No. I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, they should have extended it longer. And I know some people will think like, God, but it can't go on forever. But I just think it's so rich. And I get that there's already a spin-off plan, etc., etc. But I just think, had they taken like one more season, to, I, I think the last season could have been spread across two seasons, personally. Mm. it was so action packed yeah. and it was so awesome to watch at the time but it didn't leave much of a long lasting memory because it was it was gone in a flash but saying that I remember watching season 7 was the last season so it's the season before season 5 and season 6 had their moments but they were so slow mm. and the problem is is that by, by accelerating season 7 but having to do a lot of story in them that feels rushed they what they needed to do was do more story in five five and six and then seven could be at the pace it was or or at more delayed pace because yeah things have happened. So, so you think maybe speeding up the actions of the previous seasons would have made seven yeah. better yeah I get because that. seven I get has that. to do a lot of things in order for season eight to happen yeah yeah fair play. Five, and, 
five and six, they were talking. Um, that was that religious cults thing in King's Landing for ages, which was so, which was, was so boring. I don't care what and anyone says. Like the, the high sparrow stuff was so dull. Yeah. Have you got a final bit of news before we go on to the results of our Golden Globe predictions and yeah, that's good idea. nominations? Yes, um, so my final bit of news is that this week we learnt that um, the Aretha Franklin movie, um, which is coming out I think later this year, mm. um, which is, yes, oh yes, I'm very excited, um, it has got a new director, um, stage veteran Lysel Tommy. Um, Lies with Tommy includes plays such as Eclipsed, a live version, and the live version of Frozen that's currently touring. And she's also directed episodes of The Walking Dead, Insecure, and Queen Sugar. Um, and she's developed an adaptation of Daily Show Trevor Noah's autobiography, Born a Crime, which Lupita Nyongo is attached to. Oh, yeah, and breathe. There was a lot of. That's things. the story of his life, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. The so film, she is the film's that. coming out. Yeah, weird. Yes. Um, so, but more interesting than this is, I suppose, a bit of news from last year. But um, Aretha Franklin, who was still alive at this point last year, um, knew that this film was in the works and talked to the producer and personally chose Jennifer Hudson to be the voice of Aretha Franklin. Now, what happened after that is that um, there was a, there's a Clive Davis was the producer and he had a birthday party in which um jennifer hudson was there and she sang quite i think by accident which is even more fun um Aretha franklin hit such as respect rock steady and think and then he it, and then clive davis goes on stage and says jennifer hudson Aretha franklin wants me to tell you that you've got the role um of her in the autobiography which is quite a nice story and then aretha died in august the 16th this year so it's nice that she, this film has been made with her knowledge and that her legacy will continue with what who she has chosen to play her. Yeah. And and Jennifer Hudson's also um, won an Oscar before for her performance of Effie White in Dreamgirls. So fingers crossed, and that's fantastic. So fingers crossed she's good in this. Oh, yeah, excited. It's, it's nice that she's kind of given her nod to the film, kind of like, you know, I'm happy with the way this is going and... The way you're handling my legacy, I think that's I think that's the sign of what's going to be a good movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, and more successful American Idol slash X Factor winners doing great things. Now, Ryan Clark could win an Oscar. Imagine that. All right, mate. Slow your roll. <laughs> <laughs> let's get him, let's get him hosting X Factor first. All right, let's build him up. Oh, baby steps. Um, great. Golden Globes were this weekend just gone. Now, yes. in our last episode, we were recording the day of the Globes, but obviously in the UK, the actual show is on at like one in the morning, and we both have work the next day, so we didn't bother. Yeah, to stay we didn't up fancy for it. recording the podcast at three o'clock. Uh, absolutely in the not. Maybe we'll do it for the Oscars, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, now we did our predictions. We went through twenty-five nomination categories. Um, do you want to know? I know we've kind of you know seen sort of what we got right what we got wrong but do you know the total amount that we got right out of 25 no i don't jake tell me the figures i'm, I'm excited we got 10 out of the 25 correct that's 40 percent of the nominations we got right that's which not bad it's closer to my prediction that we got 50 percent right you said 60 i was confident you were ambitious now, now you know, some things that we got right, we got so right. Like Olivia Coleman winning, Mahershala Ali winning, uh, Alfonso Cuaron for Best Director, Spider-Man for Best Animated Film, 
Shallow, obviously won Best Original Song. Um, American Crime Story and Darren Chris won their won their respective rewards. Awards. Richard. They won their coupons. <laughs> yeah, they've got like voucher vouchers. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you get if you win the Golden Globes. You get a voucher. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh... Richard Madden won for Bodyguards. So we got, you know, the ones we cared about. This is the way I see it, right? The ones we cared about and the ones we were familiar with, we got right, which I think means that we were quite, you know, on the money. Um, things that we got wrong, though, we got so wrong, man. Like, Bohemian Rhapsody came out of nowhere and won Best Motion Picture, and Rami Malek won Best Actor. I personally, I, I, I don't think it's deserved. I think, yes, I'm proud of what that film did, and I'm proud of how much of an ensemble piece it was, and how it took, you know, the, the real band out of their comfort zone and putting their lives on the screen. But I also kind of think it's one of those, like, oh, it's got to get a nod at at least one of the awards because otherwise Brian May's going to kick off kind of situations like I, I just to be quite frank we reviewed that film I can't remember what we gave it probably about 6 6.5 we didn't think it was terrific it was catchy it was it was enjoyable because of the music around it and Rami Malek did you know did a great job but I'm sorry it wasn't Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born and it wasn't A Star Is Born correct um Personally. I'm, never rant, I'm never ranting about a film again. No. Because I've learned that this Bohemian Rhapsody was like one of the first films that I had a full-on rant about. Um, listen to the Sin City one. It's good. Um, no, yeah, classic episode. That classic was our, That is our worst reviewed film. I think that's... No, other than Aquarella, which I refuse to review, Sin City is still the worst film that we've reviewed on this podcast. Correct. Um, but anyway... I I'm just not going to rant about films anymore because they, apparently they get golden globes if I do. Yeah, so, I mean, it's powerful tool, powerful tool, mate. Like if you do fancy a rant at some point, let me know because I'll go to Betfred and I'll just like I'll put some <laughs> money um, But I just I can't get over it, right? I think we, we haven't seen if Bill Street could talk, but it's obvious we're going to fucking love it. It was directed by Barry fucking Jenkins. A Star Is Born is incredible. I even think if if Bohemian Rhapsody won for what it represents. I think if the if the film won Best Motion Picture at the Golden Globe Awards for what it represents, Black Panther deserves it more. Yeah, 100%. Like, and, and so, so I just don't I don't conceivably see. But then I think maybe that's why the Golden Globes are the Golden Globes. You know, they're not the most prestigious award. They're not the Academy Awards. Frankly, they're not the Baftas. So they're always going to be that one that comes out of a slightly choice result. Um, but ten out of twenty five, I think we're pretty good. But it's only the start of award season. I think we need to get better at our predictions. Yes. So I've got, <laughs> we, we've got the list in front of us. Obviously, the BAFTAs, the nominations were announced this week. Um, personally, there's a lot of stuff in here that I don't know. So there's some that we aren't going to review. Um, but we're going to review the ones where we've kind of seen some things. Um, the first category is Best Film. The nominees are Black Klansman, The Favourite, Green Book, Roma and A Star Is Born. Now the two notable changes there from the Golden Globes is Bohemian Rhapsody and Black Panther have been replaced for Roma and The Favourite, which I think is perfect. Yeah, um, right? yeah, so much better. Oh, and um, Beale Street's been replaced for Green Book. Um, to be quite frank, it, it already feels like a higher quality awards evening. Mm -hmm. I also think I also am still sad that Sorry to Bother You is still not there. However, um, I'm happy that Black Klansman is in there. Yeah, true. Um, so who who do you think will get this? It's the it's 
Well, the thing is, is the is I would normally say the favourite. However, the favourite I think is also nominated for best British film. Um, so I think that the favourite might win that, and then, oh, I'm going to say either A Star Is Born or Roma. I'm going to go with yeah. A Star Is Born. See, we really should review Roma because we haven't. Neither of us have watched it. Um, and it is just breaking barriers in film. It's so huge. Yeah. I I want the story. So, same as Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. That broke barriers. Um, <laughs> fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> no, I, it did. Have you not heard the thing about Prisoner of Azkaban? No, well, what, are you, what are you talking apart about? From a, apart, apart from a couple of apart from a couple of shots, ninety eight percent of the film is all moving camera work. There's about two percent of the film where there is just static camera, but everything else. You, next time you watch it, notice it because the rest of the film it's all moving camera constantly. Interesting. And that's n- new and in- innovative. Yeah. Right. Anyway, sorry. So, do we think Roma or A Star Is Born is going to win this? Best film at the Baftas. Oh. Let's agree on one, mate, because we we got to go forward as a unit. Do you think Roma? I don't know. <laughs> Roma's probably up for other awards. I, you know what? Fuck it. We I believe in it. We believe in it. We love it. Let's say a star is born is going to win Correct. best film at the Baftas. All right. And Roma could win best documentary. Right. Outstanding British film. We have Beast, which again is meant to be terrific. Still haven't seen. Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favourite, McQueen, the documentary about Alexander McQueen. Mm-hmm. I almost said Steve McQueen. I was like, no, wrong McQueen. <laughs> Stan and Ollie, which we are reviewing on this episode, and you were never really here. Now, I think that it would be a gross negligence of me and you if we didn't vote for you were never really here. Yes. Do I think it's going to win? I, 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 I don't know. I think it probably won't um, over some of those films. But am I voting for it what, anyway? Yes. What do you yes, think, I am. What do you think would beat it, though? The Favourite or Stan and Ollie? Um, probably the favourite. Um, mm. I I don't think Stan and Ollie is going to win it, but then I I don't want to claim too hard because it might. But um, yeah, I'm going to go the I'm going to go the favourite that could win this. Um, right. If you were never really here wins, I will be so happy. So I'm going to vote for it. So we're voting for you and never really here, but we're thinking it's probably going to be the favourite. Yes, and I'm not giving any excuses. I'm not going to say. So if the favourite wins, time, we can be proud of ourselves, but also disappointed that we didn't throw our confidence behind it yes but I also uh, mate, you know what look, look lynn ramsey is just fucking incredible you and everybody really here deserves this Correct. um outstanding debut by a, a british writer director or producer we have i mean just looking at these i haven't seen any of them should we skip this one um, have you seen any of these no i've not seen any of these no, um, skip it no point. skip it let's skip Film not in an English language because we've only we've only heard of Roma. Um, yeah. Okay, documentary. We have Free Solo, McQueen, RBG, They Shall Not Grow Old, and Three Identical Strangers. Now I think They Shall Not Grow Old has courted so much love from like the BFI and kind of British institutions in general. And was on BBC iPlayer, which yeah. is important. That I think I'd be fucking surprised if that doesn't win this. Yeah. Having said that, McQueen was huge when it came out, and Free Solo is this this story about the guy that climbed the scaled the mountain in Yellowstone National Park uh, without ropes, and that's meant to be just astounding. 
Mm. Um, I just think if we're at the British Film Awards, it's got to be They Shall Not Grow Old. Yeah, I think you might be right. Um, I think it's a querula. No, I'm joking. Um, no, <laughs> I, I think I think um, They Shall Not Grow Old is my pick. Um, I think it could be beaten by McQueen, but that's uh, um, I think it's They Shall Not Grow Old for me. Right, so now we've got Best Animated Film. We only have three nominees for this. We've got Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Do you know what? I like that there's only three nominee- nominees for this. Yeah, so do it I. Makes it, it makes it selective and it makes it the best of animation. Because always in an animation category, I always find there's like one or two films that don't really deserve to be there. They're in there because they're animations that came out this year. Yeah, like, yeah. like Wreck-It Ralph 2 in the Golden Globes. Apparently Wreck-It Ralph 2 is good, but yes, I get your point. I've, I've been told it's the Lego movie in a different skin. Which doesn't yeah. make it doesn't make it bad. It just doesn't make it original. Oh, yes, that's very true. Sorry, I just got very excited about Ooh. the sentence. <laughs> um, I want Spider Man to win. Obviously, um, it won the Golden Globe, and I think it has the capability to win this as well. I just think that Wes Anderson. You know, I haven't seen Isle of Dogs, but I, you know, I've I've never seen anyone be particularly impressed by it or give a real real rage opinion. And Incredibles too, like. I respect how long it took to come out. I respect the fact that it was a real passion piece for the team behind it. But it just wasn't as good as it should have been Mm. after all that time. For me, I know that this doesn't necessarily work out. um, But in this category, I think it's the case. Now that Spider-Man has won the Golden Globes... I think it's just going to keep on rolling in those yeah, awards. Yeah, I, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. I just I don't yeah. think Incredibles 2 is strong enough to beat it. And I don't think I, Isle of Dogs has had the traction as well um, to beat it either. No. Um, um, going on to Best Director, we've got Spike Lee for Black Klansman, Pawet Palikowski for Cold nice. War, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favourite, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, who got the Golden Globe, and Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born. Um, I think Alfonso Cuaron will get it again. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think I he's the. I think he's the safe bet. I would love Yorgos Lanthimos to win. The Brits do love Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, I know that sounds a bit silly, but like it's he's his work has been very greatly admired in Britain and sort of and like people in university at like two o'clock in the morning love his films. And I know that's like sounds so silly and not 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 actually ex- meaningless, but like I just know from my cultural bubble that people have heard of it. People constantly talk about the lobster online and in things around me. So yeah, I think Yorgos could win it. Stay tuned. Roma- Stay tuned, folks. These are the valuable opinions you look for from two movie experts. <laughs> may I? May yeah. Valuable, reliable. I can assure you that people at university watch that at two in the morning and they love it. Oh no! It was so Trump. I did not think about my intonation did, being did that Trump. Trump. Did I sound Trump? Did I sound Trump when I did that? Oh, did you? Were you not going for Trump? No, mate. But halfway through saying it, I was thinking this sounds very Trumpian. You I'm did the so hands. Sorry. You uh, did the hands. I know. I can't do it now. Oh no, I've no. lost it. We need to build no. the world. No, I've lost it. I've <laughs> no, lost it. Yeah. Um, I, fuck it, let's say Yorgos Lanthimos gets Best Director. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's do the um, You Were Never Really Here style of guessing. Best Original, yeah, we're playing fast and loose with the BAFTAs. <laughs> um, best, should we do a shot for everyone we get wrong if we stay up and watch it next month? Oh, that's incredibly laddie. I'm not sure about that. Or maybe one for every everyone we get right. 
I'll have a cup of tea and a glass of tequila. Yeah, nice it is a Sunday night. <laughs> um, best original <laughs> screenplay. We have Cold War, The Favourite, Green Book, Roma, and Vice. Yes. Sorry. Um, it's, I think it's all in a different order order for me on the website. So when you say a category, I'm just like desperately scrambling to try and find <laughs> it. Um um, for this one, anyone's game, to be honest. Yeah, I can't think of who would um, win. I, 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 I think just, maybe you know, Green Book. But it's not. It's not an. That's the problem I have with Green Book being here. Is it's not an. Yes, it's an original screenplay, but it's a true story. Yeah. If if we're talking, the favorite is about Queen Anne. Yeah. 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 True. Um. And Vice is about um, Dick Cheney. Should we go for Vice just because it hasn't had any... Well, I know Christian Bale won uh, Best Actor at Golden Globes, didn't he? Um, <sighs> Sorry, uh, I don't mean to sigh. I just I just get bored of Christian Bale winning things for yeah. a, a weight gain or a weight loss. With his muggy beard. Yeah. Uh, let's say Green Book. Let's go Green Book. Yeah, why not? Um, We're playing these really hard. <laughs> <laughs> best, best adapted <laughs> screenplay. Black Klansman. Can You Ever Forgive Me? First man, if Beale Street could talk, a star is born. Um, um, a star ugh. is born, or a bit if Beale Street could talk is my yeah. two. I I think, uh, I think out of the two, I think a star is born until it gets to the Academy Awards is going to be undervalued because it's largely like my, I remember telling my parents how much I loved it when I came back from the cinema, and they were like, "Oh, but it's just a remake of a remake," and I was like you're so wrong like listen to our episode will breaks down the differences um but it is kind but it's of... also better because it's a remake of a remake of a remake but it's because it, it could be overdone but i don't but i don't think i don't think that i think there's a lot of people that don't see a lot of merit in it um or see it as a bit of a yawn fest that they've seen before so i worry that it's going to be snubbed until it gets to the academy awards mm. um let's go with if beale street could talk yeah, why not? Um, because it's it's already an incredibly popular book, so I think the ability to take that and do it justice um, is, is is really impressive. To to kind of retain the weight of the novel um, in the film. Yes, um, I also agree. Um, um, nice let's... way of putting it. That was not hard and loose. That was well, well thought out and considered. That was balanced. That was balanced. Uh, leading actress, we've got Glenn Close for The Wife, who won the Golden Globe. Lady Gaga in A Star Is Born. Melissa McCarthy in Can You Ever Forgive Me. Olivia Colman in The Favourite. Or Viola Davis in Widows. Well, I think we can safely agree <laughs> that it is not Viola Davis in Widows. <laughs> Yes, oh, she does good, do a good performance, but it's, it's also the same performance she does in How to Get Away with Murder. Um, so no, um, Gaga or Coleman? Who are, you, who are you feeling? Well, you say Gaga or Coleman, and then Glenn Close won the Golden Globe. True. Um, which, it, but then I also think that for me that was a surprise. Um, fast and loose. Well, fast and loose. Coleman, favourite British yeah, audience. Coleman. BAFTAs. Co- Coleman. Coleman. Also, think about the, that BAFTA, like the YouTube clip of Olivia Coleman accepting the BAFTAs and uh, she wins two. And then she goes up to the second one and says, can I also thank these people from the first one I won? Yeah. And then and then swears on TV and then... And then what does she call? Kids. She calls um, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz her bitches, doesn't she? I loved it. Yeah, it was yeah. really cute. Yeah, she's great, man. She's so cool. Um, and she gave one of the best speeches. That is one thing that I will say. We haven't really talked about like any notable moments. Um, 
just so that everyone is aware, we are going to completely boycott conversation on Fiji Water Girl because it is just the most preposterous thing that's ever happened and Correct. it doesn't deserve the attention it's getting. Um, especially considering she's a well-known model and deliberately did it as a stunt. Um, but Rami Malik gave a great speech. His speech was really lovely. He What did he say? He was like... Um, what did he say? He thanks loads of people. Did he thanks Freddie? Uh, he's like, thank you for making it happen, you beautiful man. Um, what did he say? What did he say on stage? He was like, I love. It. He was like, he's yeah. like, I. He no, he goes like, I love you, gorgeous. Mwah. And it was just like, it was really sweet. Like it was yeah, really really nice. cool. Um, but anyway, leading actor, did, we yes. have Bradley Cooper for Star Is Born, Christian Bale for Vice, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody, Steve Coogan for Stan and Ollie interesting because i think you know there's some debate to be had about who's the leading actor in this film and Viggo mortensen in green book um i, I think this i think ram malik is going to win again yeah so do i i, th- so I do think I. I think british audience bohemian rhapsody he's won the golden globe and yeah i think it is i, I think it is Rami malik i would i would have suspected him to win the, the BAFTA, even if I did not know the Golden Globe nominations, mm-hmm. just because of Bohemian Rhapsody being like a like so British and Rami Malek doing a very good job in that, I think we'll go with that. Yeah, I'll, we'll go with Rami Malek. Um, we're down to the last few now. So supporting actress, we've got Amy. We've only taken an hour to do. It. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Adams for Vice, Claire Foy for First Man, Emma Stone for The Favorite, Margot Robbie for Mary Queen of Scots, and Rachel Vice for The Favorite. Um, I don't know, man. Um, I am going to say Rachel Vice, the favourite, because the it's only a... reason I say this is because she's married to Daniel Craig, who's British, which is so bad of me. I think, it... like, go on. I just, I don't know. I think I feel like out of out of that category, for me, there's for me again the clear front runners are Emma Stone. And Rachel Vice, Claire Foy didn't win the Golden Globe for First Man. First Man did not pick up any, any awards for Golden Globes. No, I don't think so. Um, Amy Adams in Vice. She's also she, I, Amy Adams has had so many Oscar bait films, and this is not the most yeah like of her films. And, and also and, when I've watched when I've watched the trailers for Vice, she's the only bit that makes me think this isn't part of a movie. This is just an actor in a role. Correct. Like she just looks like she's playing her American hustle role again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Margot Robbie and Mary Queen of Scots. The film hasn't didn't get nominated for many Golden Globes. In fact, I don't know if it maybe got costume or something. Um, so it being included in here is probably because it's a British British production film. So I don't think it's going to win the BAFTA just because it's in here because it's the BAFTAs. Do you get me? Yeah. So no, between I get you. It's, yeah, it, and then it, Emma Stone or Rachel Vice. And yeah. For me, it's Rachel Vice. Interesting though, because when we did the review last week, you said you thought Emma Stone was a better actress in it. Yeah, but can you imagine the um, the, the Rachel Weisz's winning speech, kissing her her husband James Bond? It's a PR moment, mate. Yeah, no, no, I I do agree. I do agree. I just think that um, oh, I don't know, man. Like, is Emma Stone was really good. Emma Stone was really good. I I I get it, and I like Rachel. But interesting that this this is exactly the opposite conversation that we had a week ago. Because yeah, I was going for I was... more Emma Stone and you were going for more Rachel Vice. Yeah. Maybe I kind of, when it comes to one of them winning an award, I kind of pull out a bit on Rachel Vice because I don't like her as much as an actress, so I would hope that Emma Stone would win it. But then Emma Stone has still got La La Land. 
as her main credit. Rachel Weisz has not won anything in years. And the, and that's not terms, that's not true. I bet if you looked it up, she has, but it's just not in our like memory. Yeah, well, not well, maybe. But I, I, what films has she done recently? Oh, mate, I don't know. I'm not a fan of her. Am I? Discussed it last week. <laughs> I, anyway, you know, I, we'll, I'm we'll just going to say I think that in the film, I think that Rachel Vice has the less exciting role and does more with it. But Emma Stone has the more exciting role and thrives within it because she's a good actress. Okay. So I think what Rachel Vice does with the character is a harder task that was achieved than what Emma Stone does with her character, even if Emma Stone is, in my opinion, a better actress. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yep. I'll go with that. Okay. Okay. So we haven't come to a conclusion there. <laughs> No, I know. Um, I'll go with your logic. I'm let, not sure about what. what let's I'm let's saying. say let's say Rachel Vice gets it. Yeah. Um, final award category that we're going to bother talking about. We're going to skip a few because you know we need to get on with our Stan and Ollie review. Mm-hmm. Um, supporting actor, we have Adam Driver in Black Klansman, Mahershala Ali in Green Book, Richard E. Grant in Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Sam Rockwell in Vice. Oh, I said that like it was the last one. Little Timothy Charlemagne snuck in there at the bottom with Beautiful Boy. Tiny Tim! <laughs> Tiny Tim. Uh, um, I think that Mahershala Ali will get it for Green Book. He won the Golden Globe, and I think he's i just hes a phenomenal actor. And he's on a roll at the moment because True Detective Season 3 has just started. Um, out of those actors, I, the only one I can see winning is Mahershala Ali. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, that, okay. That, there we well, go. We've done it. That is it. We've done four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Right. So we've done about thirteen categories. If you, you know can what's tell from my strange list- voice there. Yeah. Do you um, know what's interesting for the listeners on the podcast listening to us count? Um, yeah. <laughs> I start sound like Sean Connery. <laughs> um, yeah. We will see in a few weeks' time whether we got any better, whether we improved our percentage guess rate of nominations. Um, out out of what we've just guessed, what percentage do you think we got correct? Um, I'm going with the opposite tack of um, of last time and under under estimating us estimating us. Um, I'm going to go forty percent. See, we're British, so I'm going to boldly overestimate and say we got seventy five percent right. Seventy five percent right. Uh, mate, if if you're not looking to improve, what's the point in even going through the nominations and guessing them? Um, content. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Anyway, on with the review. Um, so this week, thank God, we've only got one film for you. Um, we are reviewing Stan and Ollie. Now, Stan and Ollie is directed by John S. Baird, who you, he's done a bunch of different things. Um, he's done the TV series Vinyl, which was cancelled after a season, but was a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, he's done the film adaptation of Filth, the Irvine Welsh novel starring James McAvoy, and he also way, way back did Cass, which I think had Forrest Whitaker in it, I can't remember, but it was a, quite a big film at the time. Um, it was written, Stan Lolly's been written by Jeff Pope, who, it took a little bit of digging, um, but I found that he worked with Steve Coogan last year on the Oscar-nominated film Philomena, which I didn't watch. Is it the one that has Judy Dench in it? Yes, it's the one, yeah. it's Judy Dench, and people thought that Judy Dench was going to win an Oscar for her performance. 
right. and in, and in, in the Oscars, the real Philomena came. It was the t- it was the Oscars that Ellen hosted. Brilliant. Sorry, <laughs> facts, 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 facts. Not rumours. No, 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 very, very useful, very useful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so combination of John Baird and Jeff Pope, they put this film together. They cast Steve Coogan as Stan Laurel and John C. Riley as Ollie or Babe Hardy. Um, going into this, I'm ashamed to say I don't know a lot about Laurel and Hardy. Um, I the day before did a bit of a wikipedia dive and tried to understand how they came to be and kind of what their act entailed and i was familiar with the fact that this film was going to be about their final tour through the uk um and so i kind of read up on how that actually went in real life but other than that i don't have much of a concept of the two I don't know if you're... More, I mean, well, I know you're more invested in musical theatre and drama. I didn't know if you were kind of more... You cared more about them than I did. No, I I really... I, I think that Lauren and Hardy are an, are an act that unless you have parents who are active Lauren and Hardy fans or you watch a lot of sort of Christmas television when when Christmas comes around, you, I, just, <laughs> yeah. I just haven't yeah. seen them. <laughs> yeah, because Christmas, Christmas television... Well, Christmas television is literally the time where they do rerun after rerun after rerun of yeah. all those old-time variety shows. Yeah, very um, true. Um, but I've, I've never really have been that accustomed to them. I've known who they are. I know that they've been apparently quite funny. Um, I think I watched a documentary on them when I was about eight, but I was really I, I, I turned it off um, pretty quickly. Um, I just, that for me, I then I, I went in to rewatch a lot of their stuff, and whilst I understand that that slapstick. Fu- humor is funny and how it can be a mass audience funny um and it's clever stand-up stand-up writing i'm not sure how much of it up personally makes me laugh um i laughed more in this film at the recreations of stuff they had done yeah. rather than the original clips let's put it that way yeah absolutely absolutely and i think um i was watching this film last night and i was thinking there are bits where, like, the older demographic in the cinema were laughing their socks off. I mean, they clearly have fond memories of what Steve Coogan and John C. Reilly were recreating on the screen in front of us. But I just thought, fuck, like, I remember laughing at, like, the dialogue in the film. I thought there were some incredibly funny witticism moments of, of conversation between characters. But I don't think I laughed once at the actual routines of Laurel and Hardy. Mm. Um,. It did. It, it made me feel a bit cynical, to be honest. It made me think, "Fuck! Like, how do they have so many people in stitches? Am I like really missing it?" Because, like, as you're very well aware, I'm I'm very into abstract things. Like, we we've watched some very me and you together have watched some very very surrealist comedy over the yeah. last kind of four or five years, and like. It, when I find something that I don't click with immediately, especially in terms of humour, I persist with it because I know that there is probably something of value in there because if there isn't, why are so many people interested in it? Like, for, for example, like the Eric Andre show. Um, I tried watching it because people tried to get me involved in it and I watched a few clips and I just thought, fuck, this just isn't funny. Like, this is completely lost on me. And it took me almost months. It took me almost training myself to understand the point of the comedy to actually derive pleasure from it. Mm. 
And I don't know if I'm reading way too deep into Laurel and Hardy here, but I just feel that I would really need to watch a lot of original footage to understand why it was entertaining. There, but by the sounds of it um, from the film, that, um, and also sort of just sort of from British and American comedy knowledge of that time, um, there were lots of like double acts that were put together and produced and made to be those slapstick comedians. I think sort of the it's sort of the end of the Charlie Chaplin era um, yeah. of comedy and then going into the variety show era of comedy. It's that sort of through line where it's slapstick but with a show, with a variety special, with them performing on stage. Um, well, I think, and... you know, you know we, we very much, well, I mean, I, we could get on a whole rant about um, whether comedy is policed in our current climate or not. I mean, with the current, with the recent Louis C.K. stuff where he's kind of made his way back onto the comedy road and people have been outraged at some of the jokes he's had in shows and fellow comedians have come out and said look you can hate him all you want for his lewd behavior in real life but you do not get to censor his comedy like yeah he jokes about school shootings so fucking what like anything is on the table in a comedy show Mm. um we've almost become desensitized in many ways aside from kind of that kind of liberal issue we've become desensitized and watch incredibly graphic stuff, like the kind of stuff that Frankie Boyle says. And back then, everything was kind of so PC, and mind your P's and Q's, in a way, that everything was watered down. Mm. And it's funny to think that there were grown men and women that would go and watch something like that and get the same level of pleasure out of it as we do kind of people joking about 9-11 on a comedy show, you know? Yeah. It's, in, I mean, it's interesting how things have changed. Who's, yeah. who, who's opi- like, whose opinion of comedy is more cultured than back in the 1940s or us now? Yeah, 100%. I think it's, I think it's just that different con- contextual climate where, where it was exactly as you said. It was, it was just a bit more PC because that was the time. Um, I mean, this film takes place in England like the year after rationing had just come out. Um, just 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 finished uh, it came out the the tour was in 1953 rationing stopped in 1952 like life was simpler uh, and i don't mean that to be patronizing i mean that to be i, I mean that to just be um true was that like that after the, the post-war and before the war time um it it was it, the, the comedy wasn't the wasn't as spread it was more based in performance and slapstick and humor and i suppose charlie chaplin did so well at what he did and and changed an entire generation that's what i think is i think stat is that lauren and hardy for me are bad charlie chaplin impersonators that's my thing with them and i don't mean to be rude about them i think i'm just coming from my contextual context and that's how i perceive them (laughs) my contextual context do I say um, contextual context? I well, you and your context. You, you and your fucking words, mate. Me and my um, words. <laughs> no, I completely agree. And I think I was wondering for a minute why we were kind of going on about that so much. But in reality, that was very much my mind going through this film was there is no doubt about this. This film is very well scripted. It's endearing. It's charming. It takes a, quite an introspective look at a relationship gone sour um, and a life in the limelight. But I think that there was quite a big detachment for me in the sense of not truly connecting with Laurel and Hardy as a thing that, like a, a thing to experience. Yeah. That meant that while I could sit here and go on about um, how 
brilliant Steve Coogan is at kind of having the mannerisms and the way of speech and the the mentality of Stan Laurel and how John C. Riley, you know, I mean, fuck, like, I read the other day that he spent four hours a day in makeup for this role, mm. um, and that that commitment alone is intense. Um, it takes real kind of, you know, training and and, and dedication. Um, yeah. But you know, the, the long and short of it is, yes, everything you will have heard in reviews is true. Like they they are both terrific. They both work really well together. Um, the actresses that play their wives, respectively, uh, Shirley, Shirley Henderson My and Nina Ariander. I love Shirley Henderson so much. She's in that god-awful Doctor Who episode, Love and Monsters, and she is the best thing about it. And she's also in Train Spotting, and she's so good. I love her. I lo- and she's Moaning Myrtle in Harry Potter yep. reference number yeah, two. Yeah, mate, And, I've... like, she just does all these characters that are just mean so much to me, and yeah. I love her. So but they, anyway. they they're both they're both they're, terrific, and it yeah, does great. a really it does a really good um, it does them justice and their relationship as the wives of these two celebrities. It, it like it it plays on that dynamic well without kind of making it too in your face. Um, but I just you know I I feel like a lot of this film was lost on me. I would go one step further for me for me. A lot of this film wasn't just lost to me. I feel like a lot of it was quite meh. Like, um, for, I just think in terms of the sequences, yes, you had some... Re- what was nice about it was that it was subtle and it was nuanced and it, had, it built a slow pace that you could get to grips with. Um, you weren't being like rushed into sequences. Is that you sort of plodded along at the same pace of the film and it felt comfortable. Um, but... It just missed that oomph and it missed those moments where I, I saw true emotion could break through. Also, I think that, for I don't usually say this, um, the person who did the music, who is Rolf Kent, who's done Legally Blonde, The Men Who Stare at Goats, and the song, the theme tune to Dexter, um, the TV show, um, the soundtrack just sounded quite plain and dull to me. Yeah, plain. Literally background music for the, for the actors to talk. Yeah. And I've, I feel like I read from a, from a musical comedy duo, which Lauren and Hardy, Hardy were, the fact that the music is so unremarkable is quite a struggle for me. Yeah. Um, and, and although the acting is really good, I, I don't think it is just because I don't know Lauren and Hardy that I can't buy into the characters. Because there is plenty of documentaries and and films at large that I have not known um, a, a, doc- a documentary-mented character. And then after the film, I'm like, I need to know everything about this character now. Mm. And then research, research, research. For me, it wasn't just the fact that um, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley w- w- were good at the performances. I just wasn't, I wasn't invested in, because of the film, to go into more depth about Lauren Hardy. Yeah, it, um, no, it's, it's it's a very plain film, and on the one hand, I think you could argue that maybe that's a good thing because it does these it does these people justice and it doesn't sensationalise them. Um, but then equally, there are moments or large parts of this film. I was just sitting there wondering, you know, surely it would have been more exciting to look at the rise to fame, especially if there's such a huge audience that are going to go and watch this film that aren't that familiar with Laurel and Hardy. Why did they pick 
the final tour they ever went on where nothing particularly significant really happens except for the fact that they don't quite sell out theatres at the start and then word gets out and they end up selling theatres and then Oliver Hardy eventually gets ill and in real life got ill, had a mini stroke and didn't perform again and they cancelled the tour and went back to America but in the film gets ill and then gets up out of bed to do a final performance which is completely changing the story which fucked me off a little bit because this film seems to do so much to show that it's true and it's biographical and then when push comes to shove they can't resist that Hollywood moment of completely changing the story to fit a significant film ending and I think that for me is representative of the fact that fuck all happens in this film um and I'm not saying that they should have made it more dramatic and they should have made it less true to the actual people behind it but I think it just represents the fact that yeah they were like Hollywood's odd couple but they were quite cl- they were quite plain by today's standards there was never really any drama or anything exciting that happened of mm-hmm. major note and I'm not talking it has to be extravagance or excess, like, you know, stories of kind of like a fucked up celebrity life. I just mean there have to be more entertaining anecdotes from Laurel and Hardy's life than the subject matter of this film. They just, they, just, they just have to be. And yeah. I just don't, I think it was, I think it made sense because it was a British film to go and shoot it in and on location in British theatres where they actually performed years ago. I think all of that made a lot of sense, but frankly, it would have been a better film if they had spent more time. Like I was craving, they have a few flashback scenes in it early on to kind of like when they were working in Hollywood. And as the film went on, I was craving more of that. Like give me more of them with elephants in the background on set um with these women vying for their attention all that stuff like give me more of that hollywood glitz and glamour life and how they handled that and the breakdown and the breakdown of their partnership don't like i I just thought they picked a really they picked a maybe like a, a very important emotional time in their career but it's quite drab and not a lot happens i think you either do it one of two ways you either do it where you base it around the, 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 where they didn't speak for years after um, Hardy did that elephant film and you talk and you do that story because that is alluded to throughout the whole film but the climax of where that becomes a problem although the argument is well acted it doesn't really it doesn't feel impactful you either do that story or you make it super super um, super super historical or you do a like a, a a a film that is just set in the dressing room, and they're just quipping, they're just quipping to each other, and they're doing the nice stuff, and they're having emotional breakthroughs. Their last night of the tour, the maybe have it the, the the day before he has a stroke or something like that, or the hours leading up to the stroke, and you're talking about all of their performances and rehashing all of that stuff. That could have been a beautiful film, which could have been subtle and nuanced. I feel like this film tried to be. Hollywood, but actually felt a bit um, BBC Films circa 2005. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, however, that an actor that I don't think I've recognised in a lot of things, but who I want to give a big up to, um, 
big up fella. Uh, Rufus Jones yeah. who plays um, oh, he's so funny. Bernard Delafonte um, or Delafont. Um, he's so try good. again, try again. Bernard Delafont. Delfont. Delfont. Delafonte. Um, he's amazing. He's so good. The scene where he's just um, where he's talking to the, the two wives. The scene, his first scene where he's he's got to leave them immediately. Every scene that he's in, he steals the limelight, and it's that sort of. You hate him and you love him at the same time. I, I found myself mainly, throughout the majority of this film, chuckling as soon as he came on screen because he's so good at playing that arsehole manager but then has yeah, yeah, yeah. the English charm, charm in the world. Uh, and so are, you, are you familiar with him prior to this? Well, I'm tr- I remember him being in W1A. But that's yeah, yeah, apart yeah. from apart from that, I don't don't recognise him from much. Because he was also in he was in Fresh Meat, he was in Peep Show. He um he reminds me of an actor called Dom Jolie, who is a very he has a very similar style of uh, British humour, sort of lightly arrogant, sarcastic. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, Dom Jolie or Dom Jolly? Dom Jolie, who did who did Trigger Happy TV, which was the big prank show. You know the one? Did you ever watch the I prank have, no, show? No, I, I know exactly who it is. I've never heard it called Jolie before. Or, or is he called? Is it pronounced Jolly? I think it's Dom Jolly, but no, it might right, well, be Jolie. Potato, potato. But the point being, <laughs> Dom Dom Jolly is the guy who does those <laughs> trick happy TV sketches. He does the one where, um, oh god, these are so funny. Where he's got like a giant telephone, and he's in like a library, and there's loads of people like picking out their books and being really quiet. And then his giant telephone goes, and it starts ringing with that old like orange ringtone. And he picks it up and he goes, "Hello, yeah, it's Kevin." And like he has this like screaming conversation down the phone in like a really quiet place. I think he did one at a funeral once. It's just so bad, but like my, they're my, absolutely so hilarious. And Rufus Jones, I think, came up in the same wave of British comedy, and is very much the same kind of humour. He's he's mm. hilarious. He was a really good addition to this film. I've also quite liked um, Stephanie Hyam as the receptionist. Now I did. I she played Chanel Dyson in The Bodyguard, um, and. Uh, I did not like her that much in The Bodyguard. I found that she was not that charismatic or interesting to the plot. Um, she's the intern that gets fired in the first episode and then comes back oh, to the Oh, I can't stand her. Yeah. But I, I think in this film, she does a pretty good job as the receptionist. She gets those nuances right of being that bored receptionist. And maybe it's because she is so annoying in, in The Bodyguard when she's playing sincerity. But when she's playing annoying, I really could get on board with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she annoys you. I don't know. Yeah, but that's what she's meant to do. It's the same way I feel when someone takes on the role of Abigail in The Crucible. Like, you, you love you love to hate that character, but I can't, I can't help but feel like, even though the actress is meant to make me hate her, and that's the mark of telling the character well, I just I end up hating the actress. So. I don't know. I just don't think she's that great. I mean, we've just referenced one Saki role in one show and a Saki two-minute role in a film. Like, come on, do something different. Let's let's see what you can actually do. Yes, but but I will say that her the important thing is that her Sarkiness has improved. I think anyway. <laughs> what her Sarkiness is refined. Yes, it's much more refined Sarkiness. Maybe Brilliant. she could do happiness next time. Very Who knows? True. Very Who true. knows? The range of actresses. 
Um, I, 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 I feel bad that she probably spent years and years at drama school honing her craft. And yeah. we just said, she could do happy next week. Yeah, mate, we just, we just, that's what we do on this podcast. We just <laughs> juice people to nothing. Um, on that note, what's your best description? No, no, no. no. My, I, I will make one more point before we go on to the Critic Quote Awards. Um, I did a bit of a deep dive again into John C. Riley's filmography after I came home from watching this film last night. And I didn't realise that John C. Riley had actually been around in Hollywood for much longer than I realised. He's been around since like 1989. He's been making significant films. He was in like What's Eating Gilbert Grape with a young Johnny Depp years ago. And Boogie Nights um, also. Yeah, he's in Boogie Nights. Um, but what has happened in his long, illustrious career is there are peaks and troughs. He does seemingly really good roles and then counters it by doing something, whether it's commercially successful or not, so fucking bad that he's never established himself as a good actor. So while I think that there are grounds for maybe him to have a little bit of a Steve Carell... Um, mid-career renaissance off the back of this film where people actually start to respect him more as a, a, a talented serious actor you know maybe he will get an award at some point in this season he was nominated at the Golden Globes for best actor um, but there are two films that he's had come out in the last year one of them which came out just before this film is Holmes and Watson where he played Dr. Watson Sherlock to Will Ferrell, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. And um, that film, did it make negative money? It, it it's done. It's done so. It's done so egregiously bad. I mean, did you see um, the trailer? The selfie thing, where they, where, they, where they did a selfie with an old-fashioned camera, and they went, hey, girl, hey, girl, and I, I wanted to die. It was Mate, one of the worst hey, told jokes I've ever seen on trailer. It, it, it's done so bad that report. It, there were reports that it was being pulled from all the cinemas and they tried to sell it to Netflix and Netflix were like, no, even we won't buy it. <laughs> um, but then, it, so, so that's ridiculous. It's just, I think, like, how can you go from doing something so, you know, you know impressive like Stan and Ollie in terms of a character portrayal to do something so shit like that? Um, and then equally, there's quite a perplexing film in there um have you heard of the sisters brothers the sisters brothers the sisters brothers it's quite a popular book and it was made into a film that came out in september last year we never heard about it i don't know if it came out in uk cinemas can i guess the plot gone is it about brothers of sisters um Uh, no so i can actually tell you mate so the tagline of the film is brothers by blood sisters by name now, The Sisters Brothers came out in September last year. It stars John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix as brothers. And it also has Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed in it. And it's like a western dark comedy. Now, this film got really, really good reviews from critics, but was a box office bomb, grossing just over $10 million against its $38 million budget. Now... I, like, I don't really have any point to make other than why haven't we heard about this film? Where is it? And how did it do so well critically and not make any money? With also having those combination of actors in it as well. Riz yeah. Ahmed coming off the back of Rogue One probably at that point. Um, well, still probably still Rogue One. You've got 
Jake Gyllenhaal, who has done things like Nightcrawler and like really cool indie films that he's got a good niche into, and Joaquin Phoenix, who is known as one of the best actors on the goddamn planet. So, what's happening? Why is that film not being watched? Mate, it, it got a standing ovation at the Venice International Film Festival. Which means that and, it's and, it, it and, make and Jacques, Jacques Audiard, won the, who's the director, won the Silver Lion for Best Director at the Venice International Film Festival. Um, we need to make a list of all the awards that are not the Oscars and Golden Globes and the names for them. Because you remember the, was it the Golden Chicken from the, the Chinese um, Oscars? Or, yeah, or and they have was. like the Razzies or whatever. What are they called? The um... No, the Razzies, yeah, yeah the, the worst film awards. Yeah, I'm excited oh, the, for the, that. the Raspberries or something. No, they'd be not. Something like that, something like that. Um, but yeah, no, The Sisters Brothers, a seemingly brilliant film of a great cast that we care about and never heard anything about it. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Fun. <laughs> critic Quote Awards. For Stan and Ollie, what did you find for best description? Um, there is a theme here which, which suggests that I don't really like the movie. But uh, my, best, <laughs> my best description is... Um, by Alistair Ryder of the digital the digital fix, um, he says a workmanlike and entirely unremarkable biopic that fails to match the strengths of its two central performances. Mm, okay. I think maybe that is a tad harsh. However, I also I also was did find this film quite unremarkable. Like I, I the best thing about this film is that it's an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah, so true. It was so nice to get into the cinema and know that I wasn't going to be there for a decade. Correct, correct. Um, my best description comes from Chris Nahawati of Entertainment Weekly. And he said, the film is sentimental, a bit schmaltzy, but it's an affecting behind the curtain look at a strange showbiz marriage that fans never got the chance to see. Nice. That's a, that's a very good description. Of I, I, I think that's fair enough. I think there are, you know, there, there are some particularly good moments in this film there's a bit where they have there's like one big argument that stan laurel and ollie hardy have in this film and it's kind of in front of people at a drinks reception and they kind of because they've become so accustomed to the way each other are and a certain way of behaving together um oliver hardy is so frustrated by the argument that he throws like a jam roll at stan laurel as he's leaving the room and it was kind of this tragic moment where the people around them thought that they were kind of joking around and doing a little kind of off-the-cuff bit, when in reality that was probably one of the most... It probably was the most painful conversation they'd ever had, and that was the only way he could think to react to it. Mm. Um, yeah. That bit that bit was... Well, jumping ahead a bit, but that was my, my best moment of the film. I think that that was where it really shone, that moment where it truly accentuated, like... They've been so used, they've been so accustomed to being a certain way around each other for so long that they can't even just swing their fists like men. Mm. Yes, um, I have more issues with that moment because I just I feel like it need. I feel like although the acting is very good, I do think that I, I do think that it's not a big enough climax that allows for what the, the essential last three quarters of the film is, which is them apart and them not together. And um, I don't think it was necessarily the worst disagreement ever, if that makes sense. I don't yeah, think I it agree. warrants the later part of it. Uh, Milo Savage is from Scott Nye 
of, and this is probably, I think he's taken this name of his magazine or his blog from um, one of the um, discarded names for the 52-week film project. Oh, has Battle, he? Battleship Pretension. Ooh. <laughs> that does sound that does like that does sound like something that we dreamt up literally over a beer or two yeah we like day four into it thinking oh you know what battleship pretension that's a great name for a podcast mm-hmm. no. um so he says had it more wits i'd call it cynical but it's too lifeless to even be that oh geez i know what i would say is that the reason that i find this most savage is that i don't think it is cynical I think one of the one of the biggest positives of the film is that it actually is quite sincere. I think it's quite dull, but I think it's sincere. Yeah, it's I think saying. I think it's, it does such a good job of being sincere that it makes you wonder why they're even making a film about it. Cool. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's not cynical. I can't I can't see any cynicism in it, which is why it's my most savage. So my most savage comes from Alistair Ryder of the Digital Fix, and he said. Stan and Ollie is a workmanlike and entirely unremarkable biopic that fails to match the strengths of its two central performances. Fair. It is like it, it like I hate the term like a film playing it safe because I think unless there's like an established um, reason for a film not to play it safe, that shouldn't really be a valid criticism of a movie. Like if Avengers Endgame didn't like everyone was peachy at the end of it all the characters were fine and nothing significant happened and yes i feel like that film with all of the build-up to it could be accused of playing it safe Mm. but i think a standalone film about a real life relationship i don't really think it's reasonable to say that it's playing it safe unless there was like some kind of crazy hidden cocaine addiction that one of them had that has been completely omitted from the film that strained their relationship Mate, that was just called the 50s. <laughs> that was quite possibly the worst joke ever told on this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, um, I, th- I think it was made safe and then that and that's fine. Um, I don't think it was playing it safe. I think it was just made safe. And that's what people like about it is that the fact that it's a nice film for an hour and a half. You go to the cinema and watch two actors being nice to each other. Yeah. For me, it has the same kind of, like, appeal as Last of the Summer Wine. Yeah, yeah, true. But anyway, well, we, we vowed last week, I think, that we would never have an episode of the podcast run longer than the film that we're reviewing for the week, or films. So uh, we are falling dangerously close of that now. Oh my gosh, uh, yeah. Do you have any final words before we rate this film out of ten? Well, I'll just I'll tell you've told your best moment, so I'll tell my best moment, and it's a scene with Steve Coogan and John C. Riley in the bar with my new favourite person, Rufus Jones, um, and it's when they've just done their first two or three shows, and he's presenting the idea of um, doing some publicity publicity for it, and the way that he does it, and the way that you know exactly what he's done, and that he's he's full of shit. And he's talking shit to them, yeah. and they both they both know that, but they're stuck with him now, and so they're just playing it nice. And the niceties masking like true feelings, I find fantastic. I really like that scene. Yeah, it is. It's a well acted scene, and you can imagine it happening as well. Oh, a hundred percent. You can. You, I think. I always. I think that that, no doubt, has been the, the story of so many Hollywood interactions over the years. Yeah, definitely. People, yeah, people promising the world and never delivering. 
Dark. You look quite. You look quite. Uh, I just. I don't know what happened, mate. But I think this episode's just hit me. I think we're quite cynical, but we're also opening up the cynicism of the world of Hollywood, mate. I feel like if we ever move on for the fifty-two week film project, we need to have like some kind of deep. I'm going to say deep dive again. Some kind of fucking investigation podcast where yeah. me and you uncover the the seedy underbelly of the world of films. Whilst at the same time discovering ourselves. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, what would you rate Stan and Ollie out of ten? Um, I'm going to give it a five. Oh, oh cut, mate. Fucking cut out. Come on. I'm giving it a five. That is way too critical. I'm giving it a five. I was bored. Oh, God. There were nice moments and there were nice. there was nice acting. It was but, boring. No, you can't rate it worse than, like, Jurassic Park. Or, like, what else have we watched recently? You can't rate well, it lower no, than... No, we say this and then we talked about in the, in week 26 how, although we rated Jurassic Park at that point there, we, we still have an inconsistency at the beginning of our reviews. I think in, in, in terms of films that I've seen recently, I think this is a five. I'm more bored by it than... Aquaman and by at least, at least Widows had some action and some I would say that Widows which I rated higher than this has although it falls apart on so many different things there is still at least some life into it whereas this I just do find a bit boring with the oh. occasional nice subtle nuance moment oh outrageous okay all right I'm gonna give it a 6.5 because I think that it you know, we can we can chastise. It's kind of, you know, people talk about how Solo wasn't really a necessary film. Considering the subject matter of this film, I don't think it really was necessary either. Um, even less necessary than a film like Solo. I think that I came out of this film thinking that the the actors were terrific, but they were stuck in quite a boring movie. And they should have spent more time examining another part of their career. Um, so for that reason, <laughs> for that reason, it's a six point point nothing. Sorry, that just that sounded so shady. They should um, really no, I like, just think... think about acting in a better film. Uh... No, I just, no, I just think I, I just think this film could have been a lot better, and I think it would have been yeah. a lot better if it had shown um, more of the peculiarities of their life at the height of fame and the weird shit that they did and how they managed life in America. I think it would have been more interesting. Mm. Um, I rated the so... film five the same amount of times I looked at my watch during the film. And it's only an hour and a half. Ooh, it's so edgy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, 6.5 from me. I'm a little bit more um, nice. approving, <laughs> approving of this picture. Kind. Jake approves this message. Will half approves it. Yeah, literally half approves it. Um, and that is that. That is our review of Stan and Ollie. That is our kind of BAFTA predictions as well. I'm hoping that we've done a hell of a lot better than we did with the Golden Globes. Um, I still think 40% hit rate is pretty good, especially considering a lot of them we hadn't seen. Yes, but let's see how disappointed you are with getting 75%. And yeah. we're going to get 60 But that's yeah, okay. Very true, very true. Yes. Um, next week... Um, we have two films coming out. We have Beautiful Boy, which we've been talking about seeing for a long time, but mm. hasn't quite been getting the reviews 
it looks from the trailer like it deserves. We were so um, hyped, and then our hype is slightly dipped. I yeah, think, we we have like we've dipped in hype for Beautiful Boy for sure. Um, and Glass is coming out, which is the sequel to Split. Um, which featuring... is the secret to Unbreakable. Yeah, sequel to Unbreakable, of which me and you have seen neither of. Um, Split's just come out on Netflix, so I'm going to give it a watch in anticipation. I'm going to try and watch Unbreakable as well. Uh, but this is, I mean, powerhouse cast. You've got M. Night Shyamalan directing, whether you like him or not. You've got James McAvoy, you've got Samuel L. Jackson, and you've got Bruce Willis. And you've got Sarah Paulson. So let's have another stab at seeing if Sarah Paulson can act or just play herself. <laughs> mate, you say I was harsh for you to get five out of ten. Mate, Bird, Bo- Bird Box was almost the last straw. I will give her one chance. I'll give her one final <gasps> chance. If she if she is herself in glass, I will be royally fucked off and convinced well, convinced that she's just she's a likable person, but she's not a good actress. Well, this is a great reason for you to tune into our podcast episode next week to see exactly. if Jake, Jake is Jake loses his poop at Sarah Paulson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was thinking losing my rag, but fine, you know, if we want to get that fecal about things. <laughs> well, no, I, I thought it was nice than swearing. I'm a classy broad. Um, yeah. You are, you are. Where I, I just F and Jeff willy nilly. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Um, keep in touch with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and we will see you all next week. Bye.